Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, I was given orders to start because we every minute is precious. Uh, we uh, have very interesting guests. And uh, let me uh, say I'm Vladislav Zubok, Professor of International History. But uh, it's not about me, it's uh, about the LSE Festival. And the topic for this festival this year is change. How does change affect people? And I can't find a better uh, 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 pretext to, for, this, uh, for this title, to the discussion, for this discussion. Very quickly, uh, you ha- you, it will be recorded only uh, in, uh, audio, not video. So it will be accessible around the world naturally, and uh, you can also access other events and the topics of other events, content of other events on uh, hashtag uh, LSE Festival. Now, let me introduce people uh, on the panel. Uh, Adam Curtis does not need any introduction, but still, he's a filmmaker. Among his films is The Century of the South, The Power of Nightmares, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, Hypernormalization, not to be missed, and can't get you out of my head. The most latest film, which is the topic today, is Russia 1985-1999, Trauma Zone. What it felt like to live through the collapse of communism and democracy. It's seven hour long films based on tens of thousands of hour long uh, raw footage recorded in Russia by BBC News crews through 1980s and 1990s. And after each series, Mr. Curtis uh, thanks those people who managed to take uh, those amazing footage. Uh, Curtis sees his project as an immersive history that takes the viewer through Russian society as it lived through a capitalism that wrecked the lives of millions of people. So in a sense, uh, to understand Russia now, and I quote him, what might happen in the future, you have to understand what happened back then. And for it, out of that rage, the violence, the desperation, and the overwhelming corruption that Vladimir Putin emerged. So Trauma Zone was released on the BBC in October 22 and recently won uh, the British Academy Film Award for Specialist Factual. Has been made available, uh, which I didn't know before, in, in Russian language, in Russia, as well as 14 other countries via the BBC News Russian YouTube channel. Uh, next person is Grigor Atenisyan, born in St. Petersburg, a BBC journalist and uh, also uh, award-winning documentary producer. He is a former Esquire Russia editor. He received his MA from the University of Missouri School of Journalism via Fulbright grant. Next to me is uh, my esteemed colleague Tomilo Lankina, professor, uh, Department of International Relations, educated at Oxford. She's author of Governing uh, of the Locals, Local Self-Government and Ethnic Mobilization in Russia, 2006. Local Governance in Central and Eastern Europe, 2008, and most recent uh, award, uh, awarded book, prize-winning book, is State Origins of Social Structure and Democracy in Russia, the Discrete Reproduction of Imperial Bourgeoisie. And now, as I heard, can I reveal a secret? She's working on a book on Russian descent from old believers to Alexei Navalny, probably. I, finally, briefly about myself, Vladislav Zubok. I was born in Moscow, educated at the Moscow State University. I authored many articles and books on uh, the Cold War, primarily from the Russian-Soviet side, on Russia's intellectual history and thinkers. And most recently, um, the, my uh, book, uh, 
collapse the fall of the Soviet Union. And I should add in, in brackets that this is a view from above that perfectly matches the film uh, of Mr. Curtis uh, that was done promptly from below, a view from below. So uh, before, uh, well, how we proceed? Uh, first, Mr. Curtis introduces his film, uh, Russia Traumazon, then we watch 20 minutes of this film, and then we have a discussion of the panelists, and then I will open the floor, which probably all of you want uh, to ask some questions and uh, in interact uh, with, uh, with, uh, with us, the panelists. Okay, Mr. Curtis. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Um, when the, uh, I was invited, it was suggested I showed some clips from different films in Trauma Zone. I thought it was probably best if we just showed one section. Uh, uh, and I chose the section from the fourth film, the first 20 minutes, because I do think it's the pivotal moment in that period that I'm trying to show what happened. Um, so it's just literally from the beginning of the film to 25 minutes in. I do, I just do, like we do in the BBC, have to say that it does have some quite violent imagery in it that some people might find troubling, and it also has some explicit sexual imagery in it. Uh, we warn the pub public, I warn you the same thing. But um, it's about 23 minutes long. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, we, we're waiting for those who are guilty of this production now. <laughs> Hopefully they come back. Uh, let me say a few things. Uh, um, I was in, 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 in the Soviet Union in the first months of 1992, and uh, I was struck, uh, shocked, I would say. I came back from, after my fellowship in the United States. I was shocked by this widespread hatred of Gaidar, who was, of course, the father of economic reforms. I was shocked because I believed myself that it was necessary, it was logical. The logic of Fukuyama is the end of history, of course. We're building liberal democracy and capitalist economy, and I couldn't understand why people don't understand. So that was my personal uh, impression inside of those times. But there's so many insights in this production in the sense that you know, how, how much can be conveyed in just 20-something minutes that no amount of pay, uh, paperwork can really convey. Welcome back. So uh, let me start the uh, discussion on the basis of, not of course of this episode, but the entire huge film, enormous, uh, enormous film. Um, you know, uh, one thing I wanted to say that thank you for uh, 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 dispelling the myth that the, so the end of the Soviet Union was somehow peaceful. <laughs> we, we've seen the scenes of fighting in, in several places, actually. Um, but let me give a word to my colleague uh, Tomila for, for the first question. And we uh, we decided we kind of we disagree on a number of points of post-Soviet history and in general in friendly way and many things. Uh, so we decided one question from Tomila, one question from me, and then you you will answer. Okay, if it, if it's fine. Well, I do have some questions, and I have some tough questions as well, but I'll start Good. with a softball question. Why now, and perhaps to both of you, could you tell us about what prompted you to make, create this documentary over 30, 35 years since the passage of those events that this documentary so powerfully depicts? Um, let, me, let me ask the second question in the spirit of... Could, we, could I respond to that? First? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, simply because the BBC, I discovered that the BBC had this material. Uh, and it's extraordinary. No, no other television company, as far as I know, had ever recorded anything like this. A, a guy called Phil, 
went to the BBC offices in Moscow, opened the cupboards in the back and found tens of thousands of tapes, which had been recorded since about 1986, all over Russia. And it was extraordinary. And I've always had this theory that the BBC is not using iPlayer to its full capacity. It, it, just, it just repeats stuff from it. And it's not actually using it as a, a sort of... I don't think any stream has quite worked out what it can do properly with streaming. And my original idea was literally to... Well, initially I said, could I put up 10,000 hours? <laughs> no, really, I just thought, well, the public paid for it, they can have it. And it would be quite an extraordinary thing to do. They said no, but um, what I decided to do originally was not make a programme. This was mm, towards the middle of last year. Uh, literally just put up curated stuff so people could see it. And that's really where it came from. I, re I didn't really want it to be a programme. I wanted it to be, to be something else because I think people are quite bored with the rigidity of programmes at the moment. But then the uh, war in Ukraine happened, the invasion, and the BBC got interested in what I was doing. And uh, the radar came round to me and they turned it into programmes. But its genesis was simply the fact that the BBC, I mean, you know, rooted in its post-imperial Mm -hmm. grandeur, went and recorded all this stuff. And it's extraordinary, so I just wanted to show it to the public and because the public had paid for it, they should have it for free. That was my original aim. Can I just say that I found the, the footage on Chechnya actually some of the most powerful images I have seen and in that sense I also thought that it is extremely relevant actually now in the context of Russia's brutal war on, on Ukraine. Did you want to follow up? Yeah, yeah, to follow up on the origins. I, mean, uh, I, I checked several reviews of your previous films, and they said that your narrative, your voice, is very much part of the films that you've made. But we don't see any narrative here. We see some sort of headline stuff, minimalist. Where does it come from? Why you changed your habitual narration? Well, I mean, sorry to be boring, because the material was so extraordinary. I mean, why... why yak over that. It, I mean, it was just wonderful. It was an extraordinary stuff. Most, most archive you find in, in uh, other circumstances often has old narration over it, or it's chopped down. This was like hours and hours and hours of stuff, like the Chechnya stuff you were talking about. It is extraordinary looking at this, these tapes. Is the first ten, five to ten minutes of each tape is the camera person doing what the reporter wants. Filming them do a stand-up, then what they call GVs, general views, for the news item. They've done their job, but they're stuck in Norilsk for three or four days. They then just go and film it in this very loose way, as if you're just looking at stuff. Uh, and I'd never seen anything like that in television. And it, it just shows that when people are forced to do something, they do it in the boring, rigid way. When the camera people were then left to their own devices... They just went and filmed it, and it was just completely gripping. But it was enthral it was compelling, I thought, and therefore, if I put my voice over it, it just what's the word decompelled it. It just got rid of it. So I just cut my voice out. And also, as Gregor pointed out to me, there is a Russian. Uh, well, there is a a feeling. I think the phrase is West-blaming. I think the West, so. Yes. The West has a tendency to explain the rest of the world to it. And I thought I wasn't going to do that because I just wanted to show this stuff. I just thought it was important. So that's why I cut my voice out. Can I just follow up on that? It's, it's interesting because, so my interpretation is, is very it's very different. Obviously, as, a, as somebody who is viewing this, um, I see it very much as 
a social commentary and correct me if I'm wrong. So although there is no very clear author authorial voice because there's clearly, you know, there's this amazing footage as you point out and it's valuable in itself. I see it, obviously there's editing and cutting, and so I see it very much as social commentary. So let me just ask you, was there an alternative to market capitalism in Russia in the 1990s? Hmm. <laughs> well, can I ask, uh, I'll say two questions. I don't really, I mean, I'm not naive. I was editing it, of course I was editing it. Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean by social commentary. It, it was, a history of experience at a number of levels that you don't normally see on television. Uh, and I just thought that was terribly interesting. You're asking me an economics question. And what I really was trying to keep out of this film was academia. Uh, I, I, I find a lot of the discussion of the recent events in, in the history of, done by Western television programs, either is great uh, people at the top giving you their oral history you know, people in Clinton's cabinet telling you why they've done this, or an over-academicised version, which, because economics has captured politics so much in the last 20 years, tends to be an economic analysis. So what I tried to do in that film, in that series, very, very, I mean, and this is me editorialising, was bring in economics, but only as part of something. So yeah, there is a discussion to be had about whether there are alternatives to an economic thing in Russia, but what I was trying to show is that wasn't the only ex part of the experience. It's broader than that. I think one of the real problems with the power structure of, or the attitude of the power structure of, of Western societies is it, they've become economicized. They, everything is, is, is put through the, the filter of economics. And you, in my, my own organization, the BBC, tends to do that very, very much. And I was just trying to get away from that, mm -hmm. to be honest. I want to follow that up. That is a way of slipping out yeah. answering your question. <laughs> right. Well, um, this, was an, this is enormous production about the enormity of the Soviet Union society. And I noticed you put you know, how many miles from Moscow, how many kilometers from Moscow, and all this enormity of it. But I wanted to ask you about the enormity of your experience. Uh, and you, Mr. Curtis, you, you had a brush with Russian topics before. In the 90s, then you interviewed uh, Surkov in hypernormalization. You sort of reapproached Russia. When you discovered this and when you began to, and you worked with this material, how did it change your view of Russia and its history and its society? And the same question actually for Gregor. Well, I think Gregor. Gregor should answer that. I well, whatever. Is, we both went through a lot of learning. Maybe both positions. of you. Maybe well, both of you. Um, well, I, I can just say that while watching this material, I was very surprised to see an image of Russia in the 90s that I recognized. I wasn't very, <laughs> I, I was still very small. I was growing up um, on the outskirts of St. Petersburg in a background which can be called underprivileged. But when uh, I see academic discussions uh, or journalistic discussions of Russia in the 90s, I always see two binary narratives. One is Putin's narrative, which is 90s very dark time from which he saved Russia. Of course, it's false. And then there is a liberal counter-narrative saying, oh, it was a brilliant time. It was a time of freedom and prosperity, and we loved it. And then Putin came and ruined it. And I've seen people, respected ac academics, make that argument. He in London, for example, um, a guest speaker at an event which was under Chatham House rules, so I cannot name them. 
but it doesn't matter. And I've seen in that material an image of Russia, which I remember, which was a very, very um, quirky and weird and complex mm. place. And I was thinking about the title of this talk, what, do, what does Russia believe in anything? And I think I remember the place where people were, on one hand, very, very cynical, not believing in anything. You know, at the same time, they would flock to not only to the Russian Orthodox Church, which was very different from now, because as you know, there was a lot of, there were liberal fringes and radical um, conservative fringes of it, but also to all sorts of evangelical churches. They had a huge wave of popularity across Russia, Jehovah Witnesses, then Krishnaism. I remember people going down the central prospect of St. Petersburg Central Avenue, the so-called Krishnaism, the Krishna Society in Sarya singing Hindu hymns, all white people, the converts. And uh, you know all sorts of clairvoyance. I think the most popular literature, mass publications in the 90s were the papers which just had verbatim sightings of ghosts and UFO aliens. And so this is th that was a place which I remember, and I see it in chromosome, and see in the material that we worked with, and I don't see it a lot on the you know academic pages or pages of journalism because they focus on politics more than everyday life. They see from the view from below that you've mentioned. One of the things that I've noticed with journalism in this country and with politics is that they have tended to turn everything into goodies versus baddies. Uh, it's become the, I'm going to use an academic word, the trope. It's, it's the thing. Um, when I look through that material, and I, I mean, I, in answer to your question, of course I was editorializing, but I was also just letting it wash over me and learning from it in the way that Grigor has just described. You learn that, reinforce that thing that you know as a journalist that actually people can be having a really horrible time, but they can also be having, uh, they're not complete victims. They have a complex experience of it. And sometimes they can be really silly and stupid and funny, even if they're having a really bad time. And it's that complexity, which you often read in really good novels, that actually was sort of sitting there in that material. And that's what I really tried to do, is to bring out that that complexity because I do think it is a, it's a real problem the goodies versus baddies thing it, it led us into Iraq it, it, it's it, it's it's dangerous uh, and what if there's any sort of moral point to what I was trying to show was that the complexity of human experience is really interesting especially when you're going through an extraordinary moment it's the, it's the counterpoint of the two things so I would have women it just talking in a queue in Moscow about why there are no potatoes in Moscow. And it was a sort of moment which is, you can see, oh, they're, they're victims of something, but they're very proactive. They're not, they're not, they're not the victims that we tend to, to portray on television. Sorry, that's a rant about my television rather than Russia, <laughs> but I do think it's a problem. Can I just um, ask another follow-up question? So. Uh, I, I, I take your point about uh, the goodies and baddies, uh, kind of the, the fallacy of that approach, and also the kind of economistic narratives that have sort of taken over. But I do wonder, the title of this series is about collapse, and so it is really about the trauma of living through. Now, I'm also, I grew up in the Soviet Union, so I, I'm familiar with the Soviet experience as much as I'm familiar with the traumatic and post-Soviet years. And to me, this is also, it's not just a commentary. I'm talking about the footage, not your editorial take. It's not just about what I see is not just the trauma of collapse. What I see is the misery of communism. It's the misery of 
poor infrastructure, absolutely appalling. Just looking at the people who are in, in, in those images, they're as much victims of the Soviet experience as they are of the trauma of the post-Soviet. And I, I wonder how, what would be your, so is communism just kind of a rosy backdrop to this traumatic stuff that we're seeing in the footage? Or is it how, and, and, and I'm sure as, as somebody who's a filmmaker, you would be familiar, you, 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 you would appreciate that. Obviously, different people take different um, process emotionally these visual images in different ways. And, and I'm processing it as someone who has actually lived through communism. So I was born in the 1970s. The people I really liked in the early, I mean, for those of you who haven't seen it, there were, in the early episodes, there were two older women who were sisters, uh, one of whom lived way outside Moscow, the other lived uh, in Moscow. Uh, they were victims of a, of a system that was falling apart, but they were also very funny but they knew that they were victims. It was, it was really and I loved them. And actually, I noticed that people, when they saw the films, really loved them. And I was trying to bring that out. Is the, the really interesting thing that people have told me about Moscow in 1988, which is, I think, is sort of probably true to an extent in our country at the present moment, is that everyone knew that the system was absurd. Everyone knew that it was failing. Everyone knew that the buttons the managers were pushing did not have any logical effects, that they were creating absurd, crazy, and destructive outcomes. Yet because no one in that system had any vision of an alternative, people just accepted it as normal. And they lived with it. And if you have to live with something, you deal with it in all kinds of different ways. This is what I was trying to show. Of course it was horrible. It was weird. It was absurd. And I would argue, possibly, we're going through our own version of that at the moment. But as you know from now in this country, there's a great d demand for change. Everyone knows the system is completely corrupt. Those at the top are very corrupt. Politicians lie. But because no one in the power structure has any alternatives, we just sort of accept it. There is, there is no one offering an alternative. It's sort of normal. And, in, in, and we wouldn't describe ourselves as terrible victims. We would describe ourselves as complex human beings living in a shit time. And that's sort of mm. roughly what was going on in Moscow in 1988. That's my answer. Well, yeah. <laughs> I know, Mr. Curtis, you don't think much of us academics. <laughs> but according to some reviews, you, you read uh, my friend uh, Alyosha Yurchak's book. Uh, everything was forever until it was no oh, more. It's a great book. It's a great book. I agree. I agree. So the whole thing about how people lack alternative and continue yeah. to live despite the fact that you know everything goes to hell, it's very much the theme of last Soviet years and actually post-Soviet years. I would argue much of your film it's about people unable to cope with the new order that is being imposed on them by circumstances and from above. And that leads me sort of to, the, to my question. It's Russia, yes, in the title. It's Russia. Russia through trauma zone. But you, 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 you te you're telling us about the entire enormity of the Soviet Union. We see Georgia, we see Moldova, we see later on Central Asia, and so on and so forth. And at some point, you kind of think, oh, well, they're all the same. They were all experiencing this trauma zone for a number of years. 
And yet, then, their histories went into different direction. So when you selected the Ukrainian uh, so, uh, parts of, for your film, Georgian and so on and so forth, did you think about why those countries went in different direction and Russia went in its direction we know, so to say? Uh, could you reflect a little bit about it? The why they went diversity born out of the common trauma zone. Well, I think if you're dealing with the collapse of an empire, I mean, if I was making a film in 1957 about the, when was 56, about the collapse of Britain's power in the world, I would go and I would include Kenya, Egypt, elements of that, because that's part of how the power structure worked. It connected with other elements of the world. Yes, they went in different ways, but that's why I went for, for that, because you have to. You can't see Russia in isolation during that period. It was as simple as that. That's why I chose that. And there were no borders, by the way, no customs, no borders, so it was one space. Another question. At the risk of sounding academic, and I know you, you've already made your, it very clear uh, what you think about academizing, but uh, there was some great footage, and, and actually it was in, in this episode that we just saw of those uh, old wise men, and they're all men, sitting and kind of pouring over, and there are several little, you know, you keep returning to those, those great images of those men sitting and debating about the, the Russian, the new Russian anthem. Oh, yeah. And we know that they received 60,000 drafts, which was really interesting. Um, and But one of the, it wasn't in this bit that we just saw, but uh, at one point they get uh, one of the drafts for the lyrics says that Russia is heading towards fascism. Um, and that was kind of for she, somebody obviously, some, some wise crack decided to send it as a joke, presumably, as th that this should be in the lyrics. Um, but I just wonder what your take would be if you had to, you know, without go, you know, without being too academic about it, whether Russia would have had it a different be. future if there was a no disastrous shock therapy, privatization, etc. Uh, because it sounds almost prophetic, what, you know, that wisecrack guy who sent in or a lady who sent in those words about fascism. Uh, and, and there's disagreement whether Russia has become a fascist state or not. There's a lot of academic debate, but whether you, you think that, you know, the disastrous kind of outcome of that transition is, is know, would things have been different? Because it's almost like prophetic that, well, or at least, you know, if we take that Russia I has moved I, into I, this I mean, what's the, I don't know. Would it have been different? I mean, immediately once you started asking about the anthem, I knew that you, you, you were going to ask about that line about Russia is being led to the triumph of fascism. I loved it very much. Um, I think actually in the discussion of those anthems, you see all sorts of views. There are people who want Russia to be a fascist state or just joking about it. There are people who espouse dem democratic ideas, I think even anarchist ideas. And I think there was this diversity. Um, all sorts of options are represented in that competition, aren't they? And it's it's very symbolic that they couldn't pick um, a text. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the alternative would be. All I know, that's exactly right. We throughout, with the material we had, which of course is limited by what has been recorded, I chose to show all the different... It was like there were sparks exploding every, every way mm. at that point. Mm. And, going, and you can look back and say, ah, that's leading to that. But at the time, you couldn't. And one of the things I really wanted to try and do was give a sense that, uh, of, not, of people not knowing where it was going. 
because that is the truth of human experience. And I, I, just, I just think it's really interesting to try and interweave big history with the, the, the minutiae of, of just individual experience. It's a thing that we don't, because I work in television, that's really all I know, is that in television you, you tend to make factual films about individuals' experience, or you make big grand things where Clinton's cabinet tells you what they thought at a particular time, or Paul Wolfowitz says why they invaded Iraq. You never put the two together. And we were sort of trying to do that with this. There was a shorthand at work, which is that we assumed the audience knew the big stuff. So we didn't have to do too much about that. We did bits of it, and Gaidar is obviously a really interesting character. I, I really want to do more about him and his family, but he's interesting. But to, to weave that together, just with the detail of experience, felt to me satisfying. It, it, and, and, and I hadn't seen that before about Russia. Can I briefly add to the question of fascism? I think, as you know, but it's very important to state that fascism just didn't happen. You know, it's not a climate event. It was a social engineering experiment. And I remember still working as a journalist in Russia. Um, we all mm -hmm. see it happening. We all saw it happening. We all knew it was going on. We knew that Russia was being turned, the society is being engineered to become a fascist society. And we all dismissed it and laughed it off because we thought, these are corrupt people, they are idiots, they are incohesive, they love communism and they love the Tsar, they love the Ni Nicholas and his family and Lenin who ordered him killed. And we thought they are corrupt, they're just going to steal all that money, buy houses in Côte d'Azur and just going to run out of the country. They're not going to follow through, it's not going to work because we are smart and they are stupid and they're just... Uh, around to steal money and they actually because it was so primitive and because it was so knee-jerk reaction and didn't have any ideology but it 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 pushed all the right buttons it worked but it was a really real so social engineering effort in in a way that early communism was a social engineering effort or shock therapy was a social engineering effort i think we just didn't want to believe that it it would succeed mm -hmm. Can I just also add that the, the footage on Zhirinovsky, there's quite a bit of Zhirinovsky, as you know, yeah. we, we all know him as a buffoon, but what really, really struck me is the, um, you know, how shamelessly he manipulated people's suffering and sentiments of, you know, whatever lost glory and whatnot, and also some receptivity. You talk about ordinary people and, and some kind of sense that the people are actually receptive to the message of this buffoon, to, to a lot of us, right, who were watching him then. It, it was clear that he was a, a buffoon, if not a product of the KGB and whatnot. There's all kinds of theories about where he yeah. came from, but that was, I think, really very powerful. Um, if I can follow up on this, I was thinking about the main, uh, the byline for this discussion, did, did, does Russia believe in anything? And much of the film is about the 90s, and I think, and that's, that's also my feeling as the person who lived there and visited later on, is they, they passionately wanted to believe in something during the 90s. Mm. So the process, this, you know, the soaring of cynicism, the soaring of you know, disillusionment and frustration is more towards the end of your film. Yes, I, I think that, I mean, I was primarily making this for a Western audience, because that's my job. And I, one th everyone knew that communism failed and Russia went into chaos. What they didn't realize is what you're talking about, which is that by the end of the 90s, there was total disillusion with everything. And I, there was an, there's an interview I uh, have with a television presenter right at the end of the film about you, no one trusts democracy now. 
And that's why I think in the subtitle of the series, I called it The Collapse of Communism and Democracy, because in this country, people don't realise that. That by the end of the 1990s, the majority of Russian people had total disillusion with any of the sort of that Western idea of freedom and democracy. They thought it leaded into corruption, violence, and in many cases, in warlike horror. Uh, and I really want to ram that home to people here. It's important. Yeah, but that something tells me that the people in the audience uh, would hate me if I don't open the floor right now for, for, for questions. And uh, I, I, I recognize some faces in the audience and people who not only lived in, 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 in the Soviet Union at the time, but were important, important to experts and officials there. So please, you know, anyone actually can raise a hand and uh, may, maybe... Uh, the person over there. <laughs> well, just just guessing. There's so many hands. Sorry. Yes, it, it's some. Go ahead. Something came that came up about uh, I think Professor Tomalina, in terms of the complexities and the collapse the trauma and the chaos that about the alternatives to quote, it says there's no alternative and the guider effect on prices and hyperinflation. Does the p panel believe in terms of outcomes and disillusionment shown in that in the film and the document, is there a way forward for USSR, as we knew. Who wants to start? To be honest, I'm, I'm not going to answer that because I don't think I'm in any way privileged, uh, in a position to do that. One of the reasons I stopped the film at the end of 1999 is because I don't think we in the West fully understand what's happened in Russia yet. I'm very suspicious of a lot of the reporting of Russia in this country. It, again, it's goodies versus baddies. No, I just thought the best I can do and I think it was an important thing to do, was because I had this material, was show what now came out of. And that I just stopped. You just see Putin at the end, I said. Because I thought that was the right thing to do. And it sort of clicked with people here. They got it. And they paid much more attention to it than if I'd done a thing that went on and pulled Putin in and tried to argue what would come next. So at the risk of sounding modest, I don't know. I've got absolutely <laughs> no idea, and I wouldn't, and I don't think I should answer. <laughs> Sorry, Gregor. I don't Maybe have, Gregor can. Well, yeah, I don't I have. <laughs> I don't have a nice answer either, but I can tell you what I'm watching and where I'm looking to find out that answer because I'm re really interested in that question. I think there emerged two two different civil societies in Russia, two parts of civil society which are battling. One is a civil society in the Western sense of the world that we used to think about liberal people, human rights defenders, and people on the democracy side who raise money for Ukrainian armed forces, who raise money for the refugees from Ukraine, who help the refugees from Ukraine come to Russia and then go to the West because once you're on occupied territories, that's the only way out and who fundraise for political prisoners and who still try to run independent publications. But there is a different civil society, and I think it can be called civil society 
because it's uh, grassroots, it's funded by a lot of people just donating their back to it, and it's the so-called Z-universe, people supporting the war, bloggers and uh, opinion leaders and people who go to the front lines and buy a lot of equipment and drones for the Russian army. They, get, they are connected to the Kremlin and to the Wagner Group and to the Ministry of Defense, but there is a lot of grassroots activity. And they are also civil society, because civil society can endorse fascist and hateful ideas as well. And I think these two civil societies are battling for the soul and future of Russia. Daniela, do you have a magic uh, I, I, I think um, my short answer would be uh, if, if the question is about the, the future of Russia, I think you know everything hinges on this horrific, absolutely horrific war that Russia is wage, waging against Ukraine, which is um, really, uh, it should be and it will be it should really be um, decades of reckoning for Russian society about their own responsibility for inaction, for some sort of complicity. It's not just about the Putin regime. It's about the broader society. It's about, and I say this as a Russian who really deeply cares about Ukraine, you know, and, and, and I think this is Russia's future will be inextricably tied as, a, as hopefully eventually a, 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 a democratic, you know, prosperous society to how it reckons uh, with, this, with this legacy of Russia's atrocities. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super-rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Well, very quickly to your excellent, uh, but also very complex question. Uh, the first thing, that, you know, a, a point of hope. We uh, had this giant trauma for the entire Soviet space, yet some countries chose democracy and continue to choose democracy and go on along this road. It's Russia, the largest chunk of the former empire that turned wrong. So how many butterflies had been crushed during the 90s that uh, changed the course of history? I mean, a gazillion of butterflies, but I, you know, I think you know, they all could have been beaten, and I'm historical determinist only to that extent, if uh, uh, Father Yeltsin would have passed power to a different person. Let's say he tried several people before, and uh, something tells me it was a different person, but not Colonel Vladimir Putin. Things could have continued in a vastly different way. You know, people may disagree, but where to go? You know, my clear answer as a historian, none of us can say. None of us can say what will happen around the corner. Maybe someone on, the, on that side, okay? Thank you very much. I just would like to thank you, firstly, um, Adam, for this piece. That was wonderful. Um, I am definitely going home paying for my TV license to see the rest of it. Um, <laughs> what I wanted to ask, um, do you, you mentioned that uh, obviously people were living through some uh, really crazy times which they could not really explain to themselves to a large extent because they were not politicians or economists or generally, uh, didn't have that kind of experiences before. Do you think that surviving this back then 
25, 30 years ago, set the foundation for what is happening today. As in, so many people in Russia are just surviving this right now. They're not supporting what is going on, but they cannot really openly speak about it. And they're mostly focused on, like, meeting ends through the high inflation and this propaganda that goes from everywhere. So do you think that we can say that, or that would be unreasonable to assume? Well, Thank it's you. what Gregor was saying. Is, is, is there something underneath the surface bubbling away? I've no idea. I mean, it, it, by the, I mean, I do think President Putin emerged out of that nihilism. That, well, no, it was not nihilism. It's just a sort of, you live life day by day. There is no purpose. There is, there is no story. Um, and the interesting thing about Putin is he kept on inventing different kinds of stories. Mm. None of them really stuck. Um, and I, I, whether something's lurking underneath, I don't know. I mean, all I know, for, for if you, if you, it's, it's always very difficult to make historical comparisons, and you should never really do it. But when empires collapse, they keep on collapsing. They keep on falling. And you're just seeing, you know those, you know those scenes in Marvel see, movies where one thing collapses, then you realize that's just the beginning of everything collapsing, and it all just comes towards you. It feels rather like that at the moment. Uh, and I also think that's what happened with the British Empire. You know, it started in the First World War. It was still happening in 1956, when we went, the Britain went and invaded Egypt. You know, there are certain comparisons with that. I mean, it's not the same at all, but, but yet within four or five years, a, 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 a completely decaying British society and corrupt in the 1950s, highly corrupt in this country, um, a completely new ideas emerged. Now, that's different from now because that was the rise of an individualism. Empires are weird, that, that, and especially when they collapse, strange things happen. I mean, I, I think there are really strange things happening in America at the moment. <laughs> They're just strange. And, and we haven't... This is. I'm not trying to slag off academicism, he said defensively. <laughs> but what I mean is we have a series of categories which doesn't recognise what's happening at the moment. And for those people who are outside power, who feel disenfranchised, feel alone and feel frightened, they look for other kinds of stories. And you're seeing that in America, you're seeing it to an extent here, but bigger in America. And sometimes they're really strange and they're really weird. And sometimes they're very nasty. And I don't know whether that's happening in Russia. I have no idea. I suspect it might be. Um, but, but, it, but it happens on a cultural level because politics, as I said, has become so possessed by economics that we have a rigid discourse in journalism that refuses to recognize any of those things. You can see that in the reporting of America at the moment, in the liberal press, anything that's weird is just completely dismissed. <laughs> well, in fact, actually, a lot of it is so weird, it's quite fascinating. That's not to approve of it. <laughs> it's just that the, the stories we are told by our journalism, it doesn't, what's, what's is it called the Overton window? It's the, it's the thing, it, it doesn't fit within the frame, and therefore it's dismissed as these fragmentary things, and none of it makes sense. I've no idea what's going on in Russia, but given that that's what sort of began to happen in Britain in the late 50s, 
and it's now happening in, in, in America. Maybe that's happening in Russia. I don't know. I'm just trying to be optimistic. Mm. Mm. Oh, well. Okay, maybe someone in the middle. Uh, the power to the weird. We need, uh, we're here at the LSE are supposed to explain weird things, you know, sometimes. We mostly fail to do it. Uh, but, you know, over there, in the middle. Oh, the lady in the middle. It's a microphone. Mike, Mike. It was a mom. Okay, a normal question, right? <laughs> I think it was a marvelous um, series of films put together. And that I'm speaking as someone who lived through that period between 1989 and 1990 and then 1995. I think even the, the, the title is a bit mistaken, actually, because um, there was never communism. So it wasn't the end of communism. It never got to communism. It became a horrible Stalinist dictatorship. And it didn't get to democracy for the reasons that you've shown very well. And Gaidar was by no means a Democrat, and he was hated. And he did have around him the boys in pink trousers who were uh, adopting the Chicago idea of shock therapy, pushed through to um, privatize the whole of industry. And, and the whole of the working class was not only shocked, but suffered and are still suffering. The collapse in the economy, the collapse in the, I mean, the, the shortening of the life expectancy, the collapse in all the state-owned uh, provisions uh, that people depended on. And they look back with nostalgia, even look back to Stalin with nostalgia, which is horrific, actually. And all of the, not just in Russia, but the um, other republics that used to be part of the USSR, which was not an empire, even though Plochoy has written, Plochoy, I mean, Plochoy means bad in Russian, but Plochy, I don't know how you say his name, the Ukrainian author who's just written a new book on Ukraine, but he wrote a book saying end of empire about the USSR. And it, it wasn't an empire, it was a unique uh, coming together of republics, hoping that they would build socialist, uh, a socialist society, which they didn't achieve for various reasons I obviously don't have time to go into now. But I, the question? The question. <laughs> the question. Excellent. Well, why did you call it that? And how can you? All right, I'll think of a question. How can you say? <laughs> how, how, can, how can you say, having put all of that together and shown Yeltsin coming in as, as a great Democrat against the generals who were trying to carry through a coup, um, standing on the tank and professing he was a Democrat, who then sent tanks against his own parliament, and then you showed him beautifully staggering around, totally, uh, I can't think of the word polite, polite, polite totally sozzled, and, um, you know, not able to carry on. And then um, the other people who took his place, he, he could not have introduced it a real democratic that, to the kind question of... Could he, okay. could he have introduced a democratic kind of capitalism? No, I understand. Could he? What, okay. I, what I think was astonishing, yeah. which I didn't really realize when I looked through the footage, is how strong Yeltsin was when he came in, yeah. what a, uh, how powerful he was. Yeah. It, 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 you know, he really did have a, not <coughs> charisma, he had power, and you could feel it. And there are, there's a bit where he's walking around in a room in the Kremlin, getting very, very grumpy. Uh, it, it, mm -hmm. You could see it. Yet within two years, he was completely drunk, sozzled. Mm -hmm. uh, it's astonishing. Uh, and it's probably quite tragic, yes. It's as simple as that. It's, it's tragic. Um, and, and those around him are the ones who went and got Putin. Can I, can I correct the record just real quickly? I think it, 
would be factual to say that the um, composition, the coming together of Soviet Union wasn't a willful coming together of republics. It was Russian imperial project and Moscow had to send troops in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Armenia, in Azerbaijan, and in Central Asia and all over the future Soviet Union to force them into the new um, Russian Empire under the Red Banner. It's important to note. In, in, in the spirit of discussion, I actually beg to disagree on Tajikistan, <laughs> because Tajikistan was left without an army of its own, and it, there, there was civil war. And the only Soviet division that stayed there, just by pure chance, finally, finally had to intervene and restore the border with Afghanistan, not, not, not any nice country like Belgium, but Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you have, you, it's very, very dangerous to generalize on this history. It's really very complex. There's more questions. Yeah. A question here in the center, the gentleman. Uh, okay, yellow, sh yellow, yellow shirt, you know, there's a question. Yeah. And, uh, someone I know that Russian blot. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think it makes it more relevant if uh, we introduce ourselves. Uh, so. Uh, Platon Borshevsky, born in 69, 53 years old, uh, lived in St. Petersburg uh, until 30 years ago, then lived in London. Uh, son of uh, slain a Russian, uh, one of the uh, leaders of the democratic movement, and in fact, uh, the um, scenes of her funeral are the last scenes of your series, Galina Staravoitova. Uh, to the question, I think it's a question to the whole panel. Uh, we think, or rather Russian, sort of some wings of Russian democratic society think that possibly the main uh, uh, explanation as to where we are now with Russia lies much deeper in history, in Stalinism, in uh, what went on before, and my question is, how would you react to that, rather than us saying that it possibly lies in the more recent history of the last 30 years? Okay, Platon, you're really lucky we have a pan, uh, panel expert, actually. Can I that, just right? answer, if, if I may, unless you mm, want to no, jump no, in, sure. that uh, I would even say that this lies much deeper than the, the communist history, and uh, we, sh we, we should go back to the czarist period history, and that's what my, my book is about, that actually, and, and Vlad's book, they're, they're available for purchase, and uh, we're happy to sign just outside. <laughs> um, and also my next book on, on, on the history of Russian descent is about that, and, and I'm working on this next project, um, very acutely thinking about the present and relevance of the kind of going back to the czarist period, of the deep social divide, uh, which we, know, we all know about serfdom, right? But we don't know, uh, well, very few of us know that Russian society was cleaved and divided into the so-called estates, Sasovia, uh, which really created a wedge between a small percentage of highly educated aristocracy, urban groups, clergy, uh, 
Um, and, intelligentsia? And, well, they, they, they formed the future Soviet intelligentsia, including people like Gaidar. They all came from czarist era privileged group. When I was looking at those images of Gaidar, I was thinking about the, and, and also the guy who was chairing that um, anthem, national anthem proceedings, Mikhailkov. Those people in the czarist times, they were generals. They were aristocrats. We think of them as Soviet intelligentsia. They have a pedigree going back centuries. It is a society that never changed. The divisions never disappeared between a tiny elite, mostly of aristocratic, urban, and clergy background, and the vast majority of peasants, at least half of whom have been enserfed. Right? And when we talk about the slavery of serfdom, we forget that it's not just about an institutional deprivation of rights. It's about education. These peasant masses were deprived of the kind of public education that was available by the late 19th century to uh, the more developed societies, including Britain, which had you know, parish schools and all those schools, which were providing a rudiments of education which Russian society has, has, has been deprived of. And so this kind of legacy of social divides oh. and social um, sort of the lack of rights of the vast majority of people is, I think, also at the root of the kind of social passivity that we observe now, weakness of civil society, that we see, as you know, uh, people in Ukraine and the world are wondering, what are Russians doing? Why are they not mobilizing? Why are they not getting rid of this ghastly Putin regime? What is wrong with those people? And you know, if you read my book, you will find the answers. And <laughs> my next book, and of course, Fantastic, fantastic documentary okay. of uh, is our esteemed co-panelists. Yeah, well, Grigor, what do you agree with that? I heard someone said, uh, actually, Lichachov, who grew up in, in your city, that there are two St. Petersburg, two St. Petersburg, St. Petersburgs of intelligence, aristocracy, and westernizing, educated elites, and St. Petersburg of the proles, so to say, surrounding it. And you grew up in this, you mentioned a different uh, St. Petersburg. Very much so, and I remember there was a swastika outside our, I mean on our floor. There were uh, Nazi skinheads hanging out, drinking beer and smoking, and um, you know, being from an immigrant family, I saw the danger right there. And um, I remember St. Petersburg being a neo-Nazi capital when the whole world thought of it as a cultural capital. But I, you know, I, at the risk of being out of my depth, because this is London School of Economics, I only have a master's in history, you know, very, uh, very modest background in history. But I think there is a lot of essentialist arguments about Russia nowadays. We are, a lot, we are used now for the last year of war talking about Russia as a monolith society where history determines the future. And I think um, it is mo much more of an imagined community after Benedict Anderson. And I think its future can be imagined and reimagined. And I remember, and I think a lot, <laughs> once again, being at the London School of Economics, you don't like economic arguments, but I, <laughs> I see the difference between my generations, those born in the late 90s and early, uh, uh, late, late 80s, early 90s, and then the next generation, the difference is economic reality. Our teenage years were uh, during the time of exponential, unprecedented growth of Russian economy. And we somehow, I remember the spirit of optimism. I remember knowing that you will be well off, you know, somehow, one way or another. I, will, you know, I quit the last job in Russia because there was an attempt of censorship and we all resigned the next day. We all had an idea, you know, I'll be fine. I'll you know, go clean streets, but I'll be fine. Because we never knew 
you know, the next generation, what they went through. Because, you know, a couple of years ago, I stopped, it, it became very difficult to talk to people in Russia, especially younger kids in the early 20s. I would try to interview somebody and they would say, I'm afraid to talk. I'm, I'm scared of being fired. And for my generation, it would be something shameful to admit to other people, to, and to a stranger that you are scared. But the economic reality, they were not scared of FSB. FSB doesn't go after any kid, right? It's much more uh, pick and choose or random. They were scared of losing a job knowing they won't get another. And they would be, I don't want to talk even off the record, and I will be telling them about how the BBC protects their sources, and they would say, oh no, I'm still afraid I won't get another job. Yeah. Can I say that that's also true here? Uh, when we talk about economic reality, that is the main fear and experience of, if you're young in, in this society as well. And I do think that one of the real big problems is that you have, on the one hand, the economic reality. On the other hand, you have economic theory, which reached reach its most baroque weirdness in people like Liz Truss, um, <laughs> which says if you press these buttons, this will happen. Uh, and it's not happening. And there is this great mismatch between the, ec the experience of economic reality and the, what actually happens. And that is also applies to journalistic analysis of, of that reality. It's almost like what's happening in the real world is slipping away from the way those in charge describe reality. There's a, there's a gap at the moment. And I suspect that gap was also opening up in the 80s and the 90s in Russia. Um, that, that you knew you knew that those in charge didn't know what was going on and they knew that you knew that <laughs> and that's quite true here that they know that we know that they don't know anything <laughs> and that leads to a really poisonous society and that's the poison you had in in Russia in the late 80s um, and I think that's the poison we have here now uh, and I, ha I hope it's not the same <laughs> the bias in the late 80s, I remember, was we trusted too much those people who told us, oh, they, we will take you to Europe, we'll take you to a you know, wonderful capitalist democratic society. We trusted them too much, maybe. That. Um, but, um, okay, um, more questions uh, to, we, to the other side? Oh, in the middle, probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm sorry to be random, <laughs> so many times. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, also, thank you for the chance to uh, for uh, this uh, public preview of your new film. And uh, uh, this is actually what my question is about. When I was watching it, I was feeling like I was carefully nudged to a conclusion that, you know, the guy da that, uh, uh, that guy, Gaida, he, he looks like a bad guy. Uh, capitalism is bad. Uh, people are afraid of uh, high prices, uh, they are fearing for their job security, uh, perhaps everything was fine before because otherwise why would they be afraid now? Uh, so Russians were clearly wronged and uh, you know it's impossible to escape the context of what's going on now 30 years later, uh, the war in Ukraine and what if someone watches this and thinks you know what Russians had it so bad the West apparently wronged them, maybe they're entitled to have you know a little war so uh, maybe, okay. so uh, if someone thinks this, uh, I'm not sure if that was an intention, probably it wasn't, but what would you say to such person if they get this idea after watching a film? Thank you very much. Mm. Interesting. Uh, well, I mean, there are two answers to that. One is you never know your own prejudices. You just don't. I mean, maybe 
I mean, maybe I'm too prejudiced towards Russia. Um, when you're a journalist, you have to be aware. I mean, I can give you all sorts of logical reasons why I thought it was an extremely good thing to, to explain what happened in Russia to a British audience during that period. Uh, but you also have to be aware that you have emotional currents in your own head, which are part of the bigger society. So you, you're probably the better person to answer that question than me in, on that level. I can ex tell you why. I didn't want to do a film that in any way went into a sort of moral anger about what is happening now. That's why I finished in 1999. Mm -hmm. And actually, I started making the film, as I said, before there was an invasion. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to show the complexity of human experience and how that interacted with big, giant historical forces. Because I thought, I just thought it was important to understand that. I'm not saying that's what then produced everything we have now. I just thought it was... The BBC is not very good at explaining the world outside. It, it tends to limit it to goodies and baddies. Um, so I just wanted to do a thing that... because Also because I had the material. Whether in the light of events now I'm displaying bias or wrong, I don't know. I mean, you never know. I mean, I can give you... A, I remember my father was a sort of, thought of himself as a sensible, intelligent man, but I could see racism in him. You know, you never know what is sitting in your head. Uh -huh. You just never know it. You do your best as a journalist to try and pull back anything. And I can tell you why I did this, but I don't know is the answer. You're the best judge of that. But I think on this particular matter, I think the film is very clear that the shock therapy was what the Russian elites did to the Russian people, or what Russia did to itself, not the West did to, to, to Russia. And the, the, there is a very critical review in, a, in one socialist publication saying they should have told the world about the, what West did to Russia. Instead, they said it, it's what Russia did to itself. Yeah, that was the other thing I really didn't want to do. I'm really bored with the left coming up with their normal explanation. You know, there's, there's a sort of grandeur to those who said uh, communism fell and now they've got democracy. There was a sort of dark mirror version of that on the left, which said it was the West that, that really made Russia collapse. There was a sort of narcissistic arrogance to, to, to the left doing that. Because if you actually look at the details, both on the footage we have, and if you talk to Russians, it was Russians as well who did it. You know, and there is this sort of post-imperial doominess that you hear amongst the left in this in the West about if we do really bad things, well, it's we who did it. And I don't like that because it's sort of patronising to the people who actually did do bad things to themselves. <laughs> I think, you know, credit where credit's due. <laughs> That's what I think. Agency. <laughs> Agency, yeah. Which goes back to goodies and baddies. Which is, because goodies and baddies always said, oh, they're, it's victims, you know. And then there's the baddies. Ain't like that. Well, ain't like that. Well, this film is a product of pre-war time, and I'm almost glad that uh, you did it before the war. No, but we I was, were, we were aware when we were making it of what okay. was happening, and you have to be, you have to be. I mean, the dynamic of West relationship with Russia didn't end in the 90s, when Tony Blair was visiting Moscow and shaking hands and having beer with Putin, Putin was bombing Chechnya. 
Krosny, yeah. and everybody was fine until yeah. last yeah. year, so 2022. Blair was the first person to go and see Putin, wasn't he? I think. Yes. After he became president. Yes. During there the bombing. Were, and I remember very vividly there were people uh, and, and from British academics saying Putin is like uh, Blair, new, new, mm -hmm. new labor, you know, really raving yeah. about Putin as this new guy, like the equivalent of Tony Blair. How wrong were they? Many mistakes were made. But I, I don't want to finish this discussion before giving a word to someone on the front row, if you know, if you have any. Where are mics? Where are mics? Uh, please come to to the front. You know, uh, the person who was the last ambassador of the UK in the Soviet Union, the first ambassador in Russia, uh, Roderick Braithwaite. Uh, thank you, Vlad. I I wanted to say, I could say a huge amount about the film. It was immensely stimulating, but I wanted to see if I could reduce it to a couple of things. Firstly, I thought it was very good to see a film which showed a people living in a vast country as if they were human beings instead of some sort of invention of our own. And I think you did that, you just showed the people. I think the second thing was, you showed something which is insufficiently understood here, which is the extent of the trauma. Our view, our view on the whole in the West is, well, what are they complaining about? We got rid of communism for them, mm -hmm. didn't we? They're jolly lucky, they should belt up. I have that feeling about it, and I think you showed um, what it was really like for a lot of actually ordinary people just like us with their history. The history is extremely important. It goes back well before Stalin. But nevertheless, those people. I thought another thing which needs to be driven home is first, this is a huge country. It's a very varied country. All sorts of people live in it. But in fact, 80% of them are Russians. You go to a city in the middle of Siberia, it looks just like a city, a Soviet city in Western Russia. So it's a huge country, very complicated, but with some unifying factors. I think um, I, I, I knew Gaidar well, and I worked with him, and I thought he was a decent and honorable man. Whether anybody could have done what he was trying to do, I'm strongly skeptical. I think the thing was falling apart for a whole lot of reasons, going deep into the past. I doubt if anybody could have um, you know, it'll have to work its way through, and it'll have to be Russians who do it, and not us giving them lots of good advice on the basis of no experience at all. I mean, all those Western economists who plowed out there with huge fees knew nothing about how to dismantle a communist economy on a continental scale, because nobody ever, ever had to do it. Nobody. So this was theoretical, well-paid rubbish, a lot of it, I thought. Um, so I think, I, I, I hope that a lot of people will have seen your film and got a much better idea of what the nature of the, what, what it was that actually went on. What we can actually understand if we try, we don't try mostly. Um, I entirely agree with you that anybody who knows who the next prime minister in this country is knows a lot more about the future than I do. And I certainly don't, wouldn't want to say what the future of Russia is going to be or who will succeed Putin, except that it will be done by Russians and not by us. Well, this, thank you very much. I really like the fact that Gaidar's wife was the daughter of one of the Strugatsky brothers who wrote, mm -hmm. who wrote Stalker. I just really wanted to put that in the film, and I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> because I just thought it was fascinating. Well, it's uh, with deep regret that I have to 
finish it. So I know they, we could stay here for another hour, but let me thank uh, uh, Adam Curtis and uh, Grigor and Tomila and the audience that came here and engaged in this uh, interesting, fascinating conversation. It's so important for the future of all of us, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.